Hello, my name is Taylor Cirillo, and you are listening to the Look Back Podcast, a show where we explore the intersection between career and culture. It is my pleasure to introduce you to today's guest, Michelle Pham. Oh, she's amazing. At Google, her title reads Growth Strategist within the pharma and healthcare sector. But Michelle cannot be described in such few words. She is a trailblazer dedicated to innovation and social change. She is also a storyteller who uses her platform at Google to change the world's perception of Asian women. Last but not least, she is the daughter of bold and courageous expats who risked their lives for opportunity. Our story starts here with Michelle's incredibly fearless parents and their journey to Canada. You are in for a treat. Enjoy the show. It's funny because the other day I had one of my girlfriends tell me, I'm researching my boyfriend's family on Ancestry.com <laughs> and I found out, you know, his great grandfather was this and that and I was like, you know, if I look back in my family history, we don't have a lot of, you know, diaries or documents or heirlooms that we physically could pass on to each other because Vietnam, which is where my parents are from, encountered a very serious civil war. Mm. It was tragic. Uh, people lost families. Uh, people lost husbands, wives, children, everything along the way. Um, so when I think about my parents, I just marvel at the life that, you know, they are living now yeah. compared to where they began. Mm -hmm. If we're looking back at their life, you know, <laughs> growing up, first of all, they were refugees once. Mm -hmm. They were refugees once first in their country, right? Moving from the north to the south mm -hmm. um, when there was like political turmoil happening. After settling in the south, of course, my my parents had to endure the Civil War mm -hmm. and they were also on the, the losing side, right? Which meant that you know, the opportunities afforded to them would be very limited. Mm -hmm. My dad was a soldier, which meant, you know, you'd have to go to re-education camp. Yeah. We can only imagine what goes on there or your survival rates. Mm -hmm. And my mother, um, her family was also actively opposed against, um, you know, the communist regime. And as such, uh, she, as a young woman, um, not much older than us right now, actually, mm -hmm. just got on a boat and escaped. And the first time she escaped, uh, she was actually caught by the police. And then she was jailed for uh, quite some time. And it wasn't until my, my uncle paid a bribe on her behalf mm. that uh, she was able to get her and her cellmate um, out at the time. I don't know. If I was going to jail once, <laughs> it would deter me quite a bit from doing, you know, the same action again. <laughs> Especially, you know, jails... Um, in Vietnam at that time were probably, you know, it would probably made American jails look luxurious. Yeah. Um, and can, may I just ask your mom's first name? I just yes. Her name is Luan. Mm. Um, a lot of her neighbors call her Helen. Um, she has the most vibrant 
garden in the whole neighborhood. <laughs> it's we have this bright orange door leading to her house. Um, she lives, you know, a brilliant life today. But I'm really amazed at how they've still found happiness mm-hmm. and they how they still keep and maintain happiness despite all the traumas that yeah. you know have existed in their life. Losing you know sisters, losing brothers. Um, you know, never being able to to go back to your homeland in the same way again. Um, but anyways, my mom tried again. She definitely went on that boat once again. Uh, this time, um, she lucked out, and you know, they were her ship was um, you know saved by uh, the coast guard of a neighboring country, and from there on, um, you know, she made her way to Canada, which is where I'm from. So. A story that could be tragic, kind of yeah. turned out. <laughs> turned out great. <laughs> I think I just want to touch on how she got into Canada. Yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, my mom is a saleswoman. She probably wouldn't consider herself one, but she has the, you know, knack of charm. Mm. Um, she knows how to use persuasion quite well. And she's just a natural, um, naturally happy mm. and bubbly human being, just sparking joy quite a bit. And at the time, my mom was in Hong Kong and she was uh, serving tea to the the camp warden. Mm. And the, the camp my mom was in was a Whitehead detention camp. Um, and she, one day while serving tea, decided, you know, this is my one chance. I have to make my case to the warden, right? Mm. And she slipped him a note as she was serving him his tea, <laughs> asking him, can you please help me review my file um, so that I can, you know, file for asylum abroad, right? And he did. He reviewed her file. Um he got her out of that camp and she was in the Philippines briefly after in kind of transition. And then she got to Canada. But, you know, it really kind of leads me to think about the concept that she always spoke to us about, which is if you don't ask, you're not going to mm. get right. She could have ended up serving tea for another five years, yeah. you know, but yeah. she had to take her shot. And how do you think your parents' stories have shaped your career ambitions and just your outlook on getting what you want out of your job? Many of us who are descendants of immigrants or whose parents have been displaced or refugees, I think we have an expectation on ourselves mm-hmm. that we are not living only our own dreams, but we're living the entire, you know, diaspora's yes. dreams. You know, it's not just like your blood aunt, uh-huh. but it's like your aunt from church. And then it's like this <laughs> second cousin twice removed from somewhere. There's celebration that I think happens uh, across the entire community when one of you is able to go forward and live that dream. Right? Mm-hmm. And in particular, uh, with my parents, I think I had always had an understanding growing up that, all right, I've got to use whatever gifts and skills mm-hmm. and resources I have to make a better life mm-hmm. because my parents never had that chance, right? Both entirely brilliant human beings. I can't imagine like what impacts or contributions they would have made to society mm. had they been given the opportunity and the education to, you know, make that time happen for themselves. So I definitely think the work ethic is a huge thing that they they instilled in me, as well as the optionality of choice, yeah. right? I feel like people from our parents or grandparents' generations um, had to endure a lot of suffering so that we today have the freedom to choose the paths that feel right for us. Mm. And sometimes we can look at that as a burden, but I think you've done a tremendous job at 
going after what you want, but you have integrated a life where you're constantly giving back. You're very involved in whatever local community you're in, as well as charities. So I always knew that you came from a very rich and supportive, and rich, I mean like rich in love, mm-hmm. supportive family, just because it it oozes off of you. Um, that, that's so kind. I feel yeah. like when I send my parents this podcast, they'd be like, oh, that's so <laughs> nice of her to say. But it's true. I feel, you know, one thing that I reflect upon is we definitely didn't have a lot growing up, Mm. right? This is something that it's hard to admit when you are in this huge transformative phase of your life. It's hard to say like, oh, I grew up poor. Because I think there's a lot of shame that people may have Mm -hmm. around that. Because, you know, if the life that you're living today does not really align with that, it it can be a little bit of a a shock to people, right? Mm -hmm. But for me, I actually think I've come to terms with the fact that, yeah, I didn't have a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I never lacked for love, Mm -hmm. right? I never lacked for, okay, this dream is a little crazy. (laughs) I don't really get it. But, you know, let's let's give you your chance to try it, right? Mm-hmm. The community around me, my teachers, my my parents, random people who I've never known who, you know, wrote me checks to mm-hmm. go on all these sort of adventures um, that were enriching. I look back and I'm like, wow, you know, thank yeah. you to all the people who gave me an opportunity to become the person that yeah. I became today. And that, that's richness of community for sure. It's interesting. I um, I was speaking to one woman and she said, it seems like most of your guests come from wealthy backgrounds. And I thought, huh, I think it's simply that we just don't talk enough about the struggles we experienced. And perhaps, you know, I need to lead the way in doing that. But I just think it's a bit freeing. And it it's encouraging when people hear, look, I didn't come from the same opportunities as you may think I came from. But I had an entire community supporting me. Absolutely. And I also think, you know, the taboo um, of talking Mm -hmm. about it Mm -hmm. needs to be something that we overcome as a society because until we can acknowledge that maybe a huge swath of people are missing access to opportunities because of income distribution and, you know, opportunities that are available and funded in communities, we can't solve the problem. If we can't say what the problem is, (laughs) how do we tackle it? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So in 2011, you began your first four, well, your first, but your four years at Bates. And you always joke that you became Asian Michelle once you hit Bates campus. And I think for some people, that's really hard to imagine that all of a sudden your race is amplified when you come to a college campus. But can you talk about the difference in culture of Toronto and just how you grew up in a multicultural environment. Yes. So I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. Oh, uh, don't sorry. worry. I get Toronto <laughs> all the time. Almost. <laughs> so when you go back, do you go to Vancouver? I do go back okay, to Vancouver. I'm no worries. I it's think actually, it's Drake. Blame Drake. It, it is Drake. <laughs> Justin Bieber, The weekend. I swear all my American <laughs> colleagues, all my American friends, they're always like, how was Toronto? I think my boss asked me that when I came back from the holidays. Mm-hmm. She's like, how was Toronto? I was like, oh, well, it's Vancouver. <laughs> I, I feel like we're the um, the beautiful city that just doesn't get enough attention sometimes. So going back to your question, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in Canada, it was a very interesting experience for you know, a plethora of reasons. Mm-hmm. The first was uh, my parents came to Canada during a time in which a lot of immigrants 
were making that huge migration. So you had immigrants from uh, Sri Lanka, you had immigrants from got Russia, Iran, um, India, all parts of you know South America. You had Colombia. Everyone that you know, <laughs> I feel like I had a world UN geography <laughs> class um, every time I walked through you know a lot of the city streets. And the community that my parents settled in was a hugely uh, South Indian and North Indian as well. Actually, just in, in general, a lot of people from the Punjab as well. So it was kind of interesting. Uh, we just got to see a little bit of everything. And in my, my class photos every year, uh, it would be not uncommon to have most of the class be brunette, dark-haired, and brown-eyed, just mm-hmm. like me. And as well, when I went to high school, I went to what in America some people would consider to be a magnet high school. Mm-hmm. There was like specialized programs in there. It was kind of the same. We had a little bit of everyone and everything. Mm-hmm. And because it was so normal to be Asian in Vancouver, and because it was such a celebration mm-hmm. to be Asian in Vancouver, I never thought twice about the fact that I was Asian. I was like, all right, like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just myself, yeah. right? Yeah. When I ran for student council in high school, I never had to be, well, it's Asian Michelle versus, you know, this other, yeah. you know, it's, there's no distinction mm-hmm. uh, that needed to be made. And, you know, Canada does have a history of, you know, it doesn't have the perfect record mm-hmm. on race. It doesn't have the perfect record on, you know, dealing with uh, Aboriginal communities uh, who were mm-hmm. originally in the country. It's mm-hmm. not perfect by far, but I do think that there is more of an emphasis on multicultural education. Growing up in my elementary years, uh, it was normal to talk about the celebration mm. um, and differences that existed between us and how there was so much commonality despite that. And I think that's a Canadian spirit um, of being so open and warm and embracing uh, of all. And when I came to America, I just realized like, wow, there's legacies and histories that are very painful mm. that people still haven't healed and people still aren't talking about in the ways that they should be. And that's maybe why I came into this inherited communication style and language and terminology that just didn't exist uh, where I was coming from. Hmm. But you hit the nail on the head because there is so much painful history that I think for many people, the anger or the sadness can't be removed from that conversation. So we have to figure out how to present a neutral environment, if that is at all possible, to allow people to make mistakes and just be honest with each other your summer of 2015. I love the story about how you received your first job at Google because you did what most people don't do. You read. (laughs) You read to the bottom of the email. So can you tell us a bit about that experience? Yes. So, you know, the summer of 2015, um, it was interesting because when I was graduating from college, I wasn't sure what I was going to do mm-hmm. next. Um, I was a sociology major, mm-hmm. which is very uncommon for children of immigrants or <laughs> refugees. It's not a stable thing. That, yeah. That's what people perceive. Mm-hmm. But I do think a lot of prolific people came out of sociology majors. Michelle Obama was one. Hmm. The other person who I share my namesake with. <laughs> and of course, you know, I think Martin Luther King was also a sociology mm-hmm. major. I gravitated towards the degree at the time because it helped me understand America. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know how to describe all these phenomenons that I saw, these class differences that were sometimes visible mm-hmm. at college, racial differences that were very clear at the cafeteria, mm-hmm. right? And sociology just gave you the language to run with everything that you were experiencing in life and to describe it so it becomes more real. Mm-hmm. If you don't have language, 
how can you validate that something, you know, is existing in your surroundings or in, in your however you feel? How can you express it to exactly. others? Yeah. Right. And so, you know, thinking about what to do next was definitely a challenge. Mm-hmm. I was like, should I become PhD in sociology? Mm-hmm. Should I teach? Uh, that was one question. And I asked my advisor at the time, Professor Emily Kane, someone who I hold very dear to my heart. She said, no, you're meant to go out and do something in the world. Like, not that I don't think you have the intellectual um, ability for it, but you're meant to be, you know, a mover and shaker mm-hmm, somewhere, mm-hmm. putting theory into application. Mm. And of course, being a mentor of mine, I really took those words to heart. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, now I need to find a job. This mm-hmm. is very real. <laughs> and uh, I had wrote my senior thesis on the lingerie industry. Mm-hmm. And at the time that I was writing this thesis, I was thinking about maybe doing a startup in manufacturing lingerie, mm-hmm. maybe overseas in Vietnam, where my family is from. At the time, uh, Victoria's Secret also happened to hold 80% of the global market share. So I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, okay, someone needs to come and disrupt them. Mm-hmm. This is a fun time to enter. But I just never worked up the the courage to kind of put together a business plan mm-hmm. to make it all happen. And so I was like, okay, I need to find a job. Why don't I, <laughs> why don't I apply to one job listing on the Bates career website? <laughs> it just says I need to send my my resume. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's easy enough. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be for a job at Google. Mm-hmm. And so I sent the resume in and then I reached out to the bottom of the job listing, um, found out who had listed it from Google. And then I wrote to her. I think her name is, Mor- her, her name is Morgan. Mm-hmm. She's also a Bates alum. And she and I had a great phone call and she referred me and the rest is history. Again, don't ask, don't get. (laughs) Can you also tell her how she said out of everyone who applied? Yes. She said it was only actually myself and another um, student at the time out of all the many applications who had actually reached out to say, hey, I'm serious about this. Mm. How can I elevate my application and what can I do to really make myself the best possible candidate? And Michelle, this is a lesson never ever doubt your idea again. (laughs) Sit down and write that business plan because it would have been savage Michelle. Yes, I know. (laughs) Rihanna and I could have been, you know, co-founders at some point. How fun would that be? But you're right, Taylor. You just touch on something Mm -hmm. which I have been thinking about a lot during this Mm. past eight months of at home, you know, whatever you want to call it, pandemic times, end of the world times. (laughs) Not really. I feel like it's kind of a new beginning for many of us. Um, For for me, it definitely feels that way. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many of us who grow up um, kind of in a similar background as me, at what point do we feel secure enough to take that leap, right? And at at first, you don't do it because you're like, well, I don't have enough experience, right? I don't have enough technical experience. How can I build out a software company, for example? Mm -hmm. But you could build out a lot of other things. You could build out a hardware company, a consumer company, anything along those lines. Mm -hmm. Then you're like, well, I don't have enough money. And then you're like, well, maybe I should work for a bit and save a lot of money, right? Why would anyone want to buy it from me? Exactly. But... The more I think about it, and I've worked with so many different like CMOs, we've we've been in the room Mm -hmm. with so many executives during my time working in sales at Google, Mm -hmm. um, advising companies in DTC, advising companies in retail, wholesale, and now today in healthcare. I really think the one separator, and I keep on saying it, is people just go and do it, you know? And 
it takes a lot. Again, I think it takes that community to push you and say, hey, it's time. You know, you got to start yes. moving. It takes a Michelle saying, where's that? <laughs> where's your project? But, you know, you have to be that person for yourself. Yes, you, you do. You have to. You, you can't. Because as much as it's <laughs> shame can be extremely motivating, but sometimes you have to put all the self-doubt on a shelf, close the lid and jump. You know, you. I think you just nailed it right there. Oftentimes, what's standing between you and the end is you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yes. And this quote I saw the other day, it's just like the same habits that, you know, helped you survive and get you to this point mm-hmm. is not necessarily what will help you thrive. Right. So once you saved enough money, once you have enough experience, even if you don't have enough experience or even if you don't have enough money at the time, I don't think that should be the the blocker between you and your dreams. Right. Mm -hmm. We have seen enough success stories and case studies today to know that if you go out and make it, there probably will be people who will be willing to fund it at some point. You just have to believe in the beauty of your dreams. Exactly. Exactly. You are. It's it's funny because. I find you and I think most of your friends, <laughs> you're the only person I know who threw a birthday party and spent an hour of the time praising everyone else <laughs> at the table. You are a very motivating person. That comes through in your LinkedIn about section. One of the most, I think for some people, just like I do this, but I really love your synopsis. And you describe yourself as an activator who is always exploring possibilities for innovation and entrepreneurship that will make an impact on the world. So how were you able to cultivate this part of your identity at Google? So Google has been for me huge blessing, but also a double-edged sword Mm. just for, I'm going to go through the reasons (laughs) as to why. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) Huge blessing is, you know, January 2021, it'll be my fifth year in the company. Mm. That's unusual. Most people do not stay at one company for five years Mm -hmm. in our age generation. You know, for the millennial generation, that's very uncommon. Mm -hmm. The five years have brought me tremendous amount of experience and exposure to things that I think would have been hard to access. If I didn't have the Google name brand you know, behind me, that means that at 21, I did my first ever sales meeting ever at the Hearst Towers. I remember to this day, I didn't even know that I could expense my own cab at the time. <laughs> I, I was paying for all my own like rides. And then my boss looked at me. He's like, Michelle, you don't know that, you know, you're supposed to expense all of these things on the company. And I was like, oh, thank you. You know, I, I had yeah. no idea. But I just can't imagine. I don't even think the the Hearst digital team at that time uh, knew. I was like 21 and it was my first ever meeting. It was like a glorious building. We <laughs> looked all over, you know, it had gorgeous views of yeah. New York. Yeah. And I was like, okay, you know, maybe I'm onto something. Maybe I do have a right to like, you know, be in this room mm-hmm. and I have something to contribute that is of value. And, mm-hmm. and it was of value. Mm-hmm. And that kind of became, you know, a pervasive theme throughout my career, which is like, you have to make a space for yourself to belong. You have to imagine and truly feel um, like I have belonging here. I'm going to find a a space for myself Mm. to make belonging for myself here, even though, you know, 5% of me or maybe more than 5% at times is like, all right, what business do I have doing this room telling you experienced executives (laughs) about what to do next? Right. But there, there is value in that Google name brand. And I, I have no qualms or regrets about starting my career at Google because it really was a huge launching pad for me to access a lot of opportunities that I have now, including moderating all these exciting talks mm-hmm. at Google's that I'm doing. 
I'm working on a cool project out of our Area 120 incubator at the moment. Can you tell us a bit more what that is? So Area 120 is our startup incubator okay. at Google. So in the way that a Y Combinator mm-hmm. um, would take a company, provide them resources, provide them a network of mentors, um, you know, folks to, to talk to, uh, that's our internal version. Okay. So instead of going out and doing your idea, maybe you, you create that idea within Google and then it gets absorbed into a Google product area. Wow. So it could go into our next billion users. It could go into Google Pay, you know, lots of different Yeah. Interesting things. Very smart on Google. <laughs> it's very smart on Google. It keeps, t- keeps a lot of talented people um, in. And I'm working with an old mentor of mine, Nate, on a project there that is about to flex some of my skills. Okay. So I've been in sales now for five mm-hmm. years, in case everyone was wondering, what has she been doing for five years? <laughs> five years of it um, has been a lot with the AdWords product. Mm-hmm. And AdWords is essentially, you know, if you go in the New York Times and you see a Tiffany's ad on a display banner, that's one of our ads. If you want to buy red shoes, for a date um, and you see an ad from Macy's on the search page, that would be us too. Mm. So I'm in the ads business. Um, and after five years of doing that and, and really building relationships, I just wanted to learn a new skill set. And so I reached out to my old mentor and he said, okay, what do you want to learn? And I said, I want to learn how to do product management and I want to learn how to build minimally like viable product, you know, just how do you build that whole process out? I have no idea. That's not the work I get to do every day. Mm. So we just launched that process together and it's just been really exciting to, to be able to do like deep intellectual work again and think about new, exciting ideas that you haven't really had the chance to engage in because of your day-to-day. Mm. Um, so I'm appreciative of Google for for all those aspects. I think the double-edged sword part is, you know, where do you go from there? I do want to know what it's like being an Asian Canadian mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> woman in tech. Do you think the assumption of Asian success can have the effect of excluding Asian men and women from the conversation around diversity? So this is a brilliant question and one that I've thought on very deeply Mm -hmm. for quite some time. When I attended Bates at the time, Asian Americans were recruited by the Office of Admissions, um, you know, as part of the diversity programming and representation, because there's not a lot of Asians at Bates, maybe about 6%, 7% Mm -hmm. per year. There's actually more black students than than I looked up the stats yesterday. I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Um, You know, it's in Maine. Mm -hmm. um, There's probably a lot of sociological, like, factors that go into Mm -hmm. that, too. But I also realize, like, once you come to campus, you have kind of two choices. Do you assimilate into whiteness or do you decide to, like, hang out with primarily black and Hispanic students? Because there's not a lot of Asians to begin with, Mm. right? So... When I was at Bates, this kind of changed the narrative. We now at the Office of Intercultural Education have, you know, Hispanic students, black students, um, Asian American students, as well as like anyone who just wants to find a community mm-hmm. in the Office of Intercultural Education. Mm-hmm. Right. And when I think of Google and I take a step back, I think it's a little complicated because it's true that there is an overrepresentation of Asians in tech. But when I dig down in the data, I think it's an overrepresentation of East Asians. Mm. So those who I would say be like Korean, Chinese, Japanese, mm. right? I rarely meet anyone who's Thai or Filipino mm. or Vietnamese, um, Cambodian mm. in the tech space. Interesting, because I feel as if those cultures are darker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they also don't come to... America with the same resources, Mm. right? 
um, a lot of them came kind of in a forced migration way. Mm-hmm. It was not voluntary skilled migration. Like my boyfriend, his parents are, are Indian. He's Indian. They came, they did their PhDs, MBAs. Mm-hmm. I mean, he grew up in a very different environment than me. Um, and recently I, I attended this talk by a professor at MIT. His name is Jackson Liu. And it's about the bamboo ceiling. So you know how we have yes. the glass ceiling yes. for women? Uh-huh. This is a bamboo ceiling for Asians. And with the bamboo ceiling for Asians, he was wondering, why does this affect East Asians Hmm. maybe more than than South Asians? Because we have a lot of South Asians in CEO positions. I mean, look at the CEO of Google, Sundar. Yeah, Yeah, you know, Sundar's (laughs) representing his people out there, right? (laughs) And the question is, like, why do so many East Asians get stuck Mm. um, in middle management? And then no one does any research about us Southeast Asians. You know, Mm. that's what I want to see. I was like, okay, where are the Southeast Asians at all in this conversation, which is where I'm from, right? Um, And a huge reason why they said that South Asians were were more likely to succeed in management is because the culture encourages debate and conversation a lot more than the East Asian culture does. East Asian culture is very differential, Mm -hmm. like authority-based. You know, Koreans have a huge hierarchy even in their language, right? Um, And so you might not be as comfortable challenging ideas Whereas talking to my boyfriend all the time is literally a debate. It's like, why do you feel that way? Tell me more. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting exhausted. You know, it's, it's a cultural difference. I yeah. see the way that he interacts with his parents. They're willing to challenge each other on anything. And it's not that common in East Asian families. And even I would say in some stuff, East Asian families to like challenge each other so openly, you might get in big trouble <laughs> if you do that. So, you know, it's a difference in, in culture. Um might just also have to do with colonization. Who knows? You know, there's different ways of educating and having discourse. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that to our attention because I think that does answer the question that yes, when it comes to diversity, oftentimes I think Asian men and women are just grouped as Asian men and women. And that is very detrimental to our progress as a society. So we have to, we have to talk about that more. We really do. You have made it your mission to give Asian women a voice at the talks at Google. And I think what you said to me, which blew my mind, because unfortunately, it's something I never thought about, is that rarely do you see Asian women on a stage being controversial. Oh, yes. And you are giving voice to those women. So in May, you interviewed writer Min Jin Lee. And, you know, she speaks on George Floyd. This was, I think, a day after he was killed. And she speaks on the divide between Black and Asian communities. I just thought to myself, huh, this isn't a conversation anyone wants to have, but we need to. So let's put that on the back shelf. We'll get to her. But just talk about your process and how you became involved at the talks at Google. You're right that we rarely see depictions of Asian women being bad, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, God, they're making too much noise. You know, they're <laughs> protesting. That's not the narrative that America has for Asian women. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I guess growing up, maybe some people would have seen me as a, a bad child. I, w- I kind of bucked the norm a little mm-hmm. bit. Right. I, I made a lot of unconventional decisions. My parents probably thought I was a handful during, you know, parts of my teenage years. But that willingness to be you know, challenging the status quo is something I admire and want to feature more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it was like, I need to start telling people stories. When I was in high school and throughout parts of college, uh, I often worked in the student paper. Um, 
I went to like a lot of journalism conferences at the time. I had a day where I got to be like on broadcast TV in Vancouver. Oh, and is there a clip we can oh, find? God. We do not want to surface. <laughs> I didn't have like nice eyebrows back then. It was a <laughs> it was a hot mess, but I had a huge interest in being like, how can I tell stories that aren't often told mm. and share them with, you know, huge audiences so that they can make a difference in the way that we view each other, the way in, you know, what, what type of conversations are we having, mm. right? What's important? And I always felt like I just never got to hear from any Asian woman growing up. Mm. And uh, when I interviewed Michelle Lee, who is editor-in-chief at Allure magazine, I told her, I was like, I never saw an Asian woman on the cover of any magazine at the grocery checkout. It was always like some very hot lady. Yeah. <laughs> She's never, she was never, you know, never looks like me, never yeah. looked at anything remotely like I mean, me. I st- still feel that that's a huge problem, mm-hmm. men and women. Yes, absolutely. Just the representation mm-hmm. um, didn't exist. And Michelle Lee really bucked the the trend with her cover models. Um, she brought on, I think, early this, you know, this year. Was it this year or last year? She had Serena Williams. Mm-hmm. She had... Um, I think one of the Kardashian sisters on, she had Gemma Chan from Crazy Rich Asians. And I was like, yes, this is the world. This reflects the <laughs> yeah. world that we really live in. Mm-hmm. These are the people who I want to hear from. Mm. And, you know, when I had Wendy Nguyen and Dr. June Chin, two women talking about we. Oh, my goodness. You know, <laughs> what a scandal for Asian parents. My daughter works in weed now. She's interviewing a weed entrepreneur. What is this? You know, but <laughs> of course, it was actually CBD. Yeah. But, you know, to a lot of Asian parents, there's no difference. There's no difference. But, you know, a lot of these interviews have also opened my family mm-hmm. an extended family and other people to be more open-minded about new ideas. They're like, oh, these two seem like very professional women. There's a doctor on stage. She's talking about how this could be used. Like, maybe we should investigate further. And I just thought it was such a statement to make to have two Asian women talking about CBD. One, she owned the first minority-owned CBD shop wow. in New York. That's a big deal. That is a right? big deal. And secondly, it's like this doctor who is talking about this very unconventional type of therapy. Um, why not them? You yeah. know, it goes back to your question, why me? Mm-hmm. It's, it's If not me, then who? Mm-hmm. So that's what I thought about for them. And recently with Min Jin Lee, you know, we, we did talk about a lot of uh, controversial things yeah. and sh- we didn't shy away from it. Why not? It was a current event. We were having a talk. Um, someone who's a huge humanist like herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was glad that she delved, delved into it. And coming in October, I have another talk with Amanda Nguyen. Mm-hmm. And she is going to be talking about how she built um, probably one of the most successful legislative movements like movements in modern time. She was sexually assaulted while she was a student at Harvard um, in her undergrad years. And she realized that rape kits often expired after six months, unless you, you know, signed a paper at, I don't know, five or six months to keep it extended. Well, most people don't want to revisit, you know, a piece of paper when they're kind of dealing with all this trauma. Um, it just seems insensitive too, right? And if they didn't sign it, it would be destroyed. So they could never prosecute that case. One year later, if they, they, you know, they had started to feel like they wanted to take action or five years later. And so her, her work is, I think, very meaningful towards, you know, anyone who has been a survivor, um, by making it the law mm. that we 
look at these kits in a more, you know, meaningful way to people's lives? How can we be more sensitive and, and understanding and compassionate? So she's coming up soon. Also very unusual, a Vietnamese American woman talking about sexual assault and building a whole, um, you know, accelerator company about that. Mm-hmm. Very unorthodox. It's a t- taboo subject that would be embarrassing in lots of cultures, including American society itself. Mm-hmm. How can anyone who's interested in that conversation view that talk it, will it be open to the public? And how can we just, you know, is there a newsletter we can follow which <laughs> informs what talks are coming up? I should tell Taylor at the look back to advertise me each time. <laughs> well, oh, not just for you, but just like yes. general yeah. talks. <laughs> I think um, so. These always get posted on YouTube. Okay. There's a Toxic Google channel. Um, and one or two weeks after the interview is done at Google, within Google, for all the you know company to see, mm-hmm. um, it will be published for anyone. The pu- public can access okay. completely. So subscribe to Talks at Google Yes, on YouTube. There's a lot of amazing <laughs> moderators outside of myself who do some really important work. Michelle is so good. You guys are going to be like, oh, get Taylor off. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, subscribe. They're, they're wonderful conversations. Which brings me back to the question, and I know it's a weighty question. How can we create allyship between Black and Asian communities? I'm not expecting you to give the world the answer, but just in your life experience, how have you bridged that gap? So I think one thing, the fact that we're in this room having this conversation is a testament to the fact that we're humanizing one another. Mm. We're building relationships and really getting to know how common or familiar some of our stories may may be to each other. For me, my journey started when I came to Bates. And I, before coming to Bates, I found out that my roommate would be Rokia Samake. And I was like, is she Japanese <laughs> I can't really tell. This was before the age of like social media really taking Mm -hmm. over. So I couldn't really find any information about her online. Mm -hmm. When I came in that first day, and I remember she had mentioned to me, she's like, well, my sister and my brother-in-law were a little nervous because, you know, you guys were Asian. We weren't sure if there'd be any issues. Mm-hmm. And my dad just came in. He's like, hello, hello. And then he was like very friendly yeah. and it made them feel so much more mm-hmm. at home. Um, and that relationship for me, we were roommates for four years. Um, you know, a girl from Harlem, a girl from East Vancouver mm-hmm. uh, really helped us understand like at the end of the day we're human Mm -hmm. you know when we got sick we gargled salt because that's what our moms told us to do not that different yeah we we enjoyed um eating a lot of the same foods Mm -hmm. we loved our moscato back in college (laughs) and we also got to educate each other about one another's communities Mm -hmm. right I knew nothing about black history. It's just not taught in my curriculum growing up. It, we didn't have the same um, like extended version that America had. Yeah. Um, it was just not top of our, our educational curriculum. And I guess we should paraphrase that by saying African-American. Yes, yes. Yeah. We didn't yeah. have African-American yeah. history. <laughs> not in at all. Canada, no. Not at all. We knew about the Underground Railroad. Yeah. That's, we studied that part. We just didn't have African-American yeah. history. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was really fascinating to, to and very humbling, I think, for Rokia and then also a huge amount of my Bates friends who opened their worlds to me mm-hmm. and helped me understand better the type of work that needs to be done to kind of move forward on a lot of this. A lot of it is, you know, legal. A lot of it is inherited 
things that there's like, for example, wealth uh, disparities, right? How do you go back and correct generations of laws and essentially kind of like looting yeah. African-Americans from what they should probably yeah. have, which is like land and opportunity to go to school and opportunity to, you know, be participants in, in a society, to vote, all of that, right? To just be human mm-hmm. and have access. Um, I, I think about that quite a bit still. And, you know, when we were in college, um, because I had so many amazing, you know, black friends around me, I felt encouraged to walk into a lot of spaces and learn. Mm. I went to my African-American literature class <laughs> and it was one of my, it's still one of my favorite classes today. We read like Langston Hughes, we read mm. The Color Purple and I was like, this is really, this is the stuff that I want to understand is like, mm. why do we live in the world that we live today? Okay, this, I got to go back to the, the yeah. people, the poets and the, the writers who kind of put it all into paper in the most beautiful way, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it was a beautiful Beautiful, beautiful in like a haunting way. Yeah, giving you the language. Giving you the language, right? And so I think a way in which we can do this is we got to get our communities to talk to each other yeah. more often. Rokia and I happen to be some arrangement by Bates College. Um, someone put us together, thank God. Mm-hmm. But, but I also think, you know, I wonder from a day-to-day basis, uh, the generation's your generation, my generation, I don't think we feel the same divide that other generations prior to us felt. I don't think we're as wary. We're not as cautious. Mm -hmm. We're not as fearful, right? Those are things that I think have also changed. Um, When I went to some of the Black Lives Matters protests, I saw a lot of Asians you know, uh, my age, mm-hmm. younger than me, older than me, mm-hmm. being like, yes, I am allied. Mm-hmm. I am with you. And I was like, this is so powerful, yeah. right? And I would say, I don't know a single Asian American friend of mine who doesn't feel that same sentiment mm-hmm. or who hasn't opened their pocket and donated when I was like, hey, guys, I have a match at my company mm-hmm. and we can double the amount if we all pool together. A lot of the people who contributed were my Asian American friends. And I was like, okay, we're walking Mm -hmm. and the talk, you know? So so I think we got to provide more rooms for people from all backgrounds to learn from one another. And it's difficult because we're so segregated, Mm. right? We are so segregated um, by a lot of different things. Like in New York, probably one of the most segregated school systems of all time. A lot of it is money. Yep. Right? We put some kids in private school. We put some kids in public school. And you get zoned based on where you live. Like I listened to the podcast Nice White Parents Mm -hmm. the other day. Mm -hmm. Have you listened to it? No, I'm going to check it out. It's on the New York Times. I really think it's amazing. It's the people who did Serial as well. Oh, so So of course (laughs) it's perfect. (laughs) It leads you to just wonder like... How early does it start? Yeah. You know, how early does it start that we we start dividing mm-hmm. one another from, from each other? I agree. It all starts with sharing space. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as much as we can be told, BLM, if your parents aren't bringing different cultures into your home, how can you truly be comfortable? Or if you aren't as an adult, how can you truly humanize that culture? If you only have, if you don't have a visceral 
experience with them. Minjin Lee, she also speaks about promoting Asian beauty. I took a race and speculation course at Davidson, and we actually looked at sci-fi and race. And one thing that we touched on is the fact that there aren't many Asian men who are deemed the hunk superhero or the leading man, whereas on the reverse, Asian women are like deemed this exotic desire. So I just want to talk about how that affects young men and women growing up and what you think we can do to promote and celebrate Asian beauty. I love this question. <laughs> I think my Asian brothers need to get more love. Yeah. You know, it's it's complicated because you're looking at two poles, like mm. two completely different yeah. um, experiences, right? Mm. Like Asian American women have a really easy time navigating the social world because they have, you know, for some social construct been deemed as desirable, mm. right? Um, if you look at all the dating trends and data from apps, it's like, oh, Asian women have, you know, easy time being quote unquote preferred, Mm. whatever that means. Do they feel safer, you know, to white people, to black people, et cetera? I I don't know. Maybe it's because they're in this weird in between, Mm. right? Um, But Asian men, I want to talk more about that. I I feel like my experience with um, a lot of my Asian male friends, looking back um, from college until now, um, is kind of that journey of like self-love yeah because you know when you're in college and maybe if you're not as tall as everyone maybe girls just don't want to talk to you mm. as much and maybe they have all these assumptions about you that are like Jet Li and Bruce Lee which is totally not true yeah. but I would say like there's kind of this new guard coming in right like Steven Yuen from like um, that zombie show oh The Walking Zom- Dead Walking Dead <laughs> I was like man this guy is sexy you know <laughs> yeah. I used to watch a show just because I thought he was sexy but I was like okay <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we saw Daniel Day Kim. He's um, oh, he's from Lost, you know. Yes, he's like a yes, chiseled face, yes, and I'm like, yes. okay. Um, and crazy rich Asians. Crazy rich Asians. Oh really, I yeah. think the day after Crazy Rich Asians came out, um, an account executive who I used to work with, she came in. She's like, wow, that guy was so sexy. <laughs> I, she was. I really wasn't expecting that coming from her because yeah. I was like, oh, okay, it's very unusual, mm-hmm. you know, coming yeah. from the suburbs is like very <laughs> unusual. Um, but you know, I think there is a change in the people who are writing stories yeah. and telling stories today. Writers' rooms are getting more diverse. Producers are getting more diverse. It's not at anywhere near yeah. where where I think it should be. Um, but I also think that you know we're seeing representation mm-hmm. at. Levels I've never seen before. Um, and that makes me optimistic yeah. uh, about the future. I, I think when, when you know, my kids are growing up, they're going to be able to see people on screen who look just like them and who are not, you know, their narratives aren't just about being Asian, mm-hmm. but their narratives are about just being a human being, yep. living their life, yes. enjoying everyday things, exactly. enjoying everyday pleasures. Being quirky, being an asshole, mm-hmm. being strong, mm-hmm. just, just the average tropes. Yes. Um, okay. Last question. In 10 years, how do you hope you've used innovation to impact the world? So first of all, I'm definitely going to start my company. (laughs) It's been too long. It's my time now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, growing up, we were unintentionally very sustainable. You just reuse a lot of things when you don't have a lot of money. So, you know, all your jars Mm -hmm. become reused. (laughs) 
you know, all the boxes yep. become reused and nothing goes to waste. I'm like, don't throw away, yeah. don't throw it out. <laughs> nothing gets thrown out. Everything is conserved. Wow, and... I didn't realize that was because I was poor. <laughs> you know, I always call my parents the original environmentalists. You know, nothing went to waste. Everything was always bought secondhand. Mm. Um, they really didn't contribute a lot to waste. But I think about that now and I look at like California, San Francisco, mm. particular to, you know, today and yesterday looks like life on Mars. It's yeah. orange, yeah. Um, scarily orange, right? And I just can't help but wonder, like, how can I contribute more um, from that point of view, right? Mm. There's no point innovating if there's nowhere to live. And that's always been an interest of mine. Um, I used to think that retail was where I was going to go. I just don't think that's a space I want to play in anymore. Mm -hmm. I love fashion, but the margins aren't that great, nor does it really... There's enough people making an impact there. I think we need to have more people spending time innovating sustainable solutions, but also innovating for what I would call like the underclass. A lot of the things that we innovate for today are issues of convenience, Mm -hmm. like an Uber like a seamless, like a DoorDash, or like, hmm, I want to have a blowout in my house today, right? Mm. Get me that as soon as possible. Mm. I'm like, that's innovating for like the elite hubs. I think the reason why we have a Trump presidency is because we just didn't pay attention to those who don't have, right? So uh, part of my innovation, I hope, also helps provide like jobs and opportunities to people who would need an opportunity to kind of move forward in this new world where we're we're incredibly reliant on tech, right? Um, So uh, that's kind of where I hope to go. We'll see exactly how it pans out. But, you know, I'll look back on this podcast one day and I'll be like, that's what I said. How how far off base am I today? (laughs) A big thank you to Michelle for today's wonderful episode. And if you would like to keep up with Michelle's adventures in and outside the office, please check out her blog at www.maisonfam.com. That is www.maisonfam.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. And until we meet again, have a beautiful week, and thank you for tuning in. Bye.